Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be kicking off season five today with none other than Kalpen Modi, or as many of us know him, Kalpen. Kalpen is an esteemed actor, author, and political activist. No stranger to most of us, he is known for his work in The Namesake, the Harold and Kumar series, Designated Survivor, and a couple of our team's favorite TV shows, House and How I Met Your Mother, among a host of other fan favorites. In 2009, he made a left turn out of acting and into the Obama administration, where he served as the principal associate director in the White House Office of Public Engagement. He eventually also co-chaired President Obama's re-election campaign and served on the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities. Before becoming a professional actor and White House staffer, he studied film and sociology at UCLA. Today, he continues to build his robust repertoire in Hollywood with the forthcoming show about climate change, Getting Warmer with Cal Penn, and a biopic about famed Raptors superfan Nav Vatia. With this remarkable mix of passions, humor, tact, and a keen eye for cultural trends and sensitivities, Cal has blazed the trail for so many and is the first in many respects. His new memoir, You Can't Be Serious, recounts this phenomenal story, which I'm so excited to dig in today. Gulpin, it's an honor. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we have a lot to talk about today, but yeah. where I want to start is with something a bit more basic, and that's your name. Your stage name is Kalpan, adopted from Kalpan, and you started by going that, I believe, as a joke to prove that you'd get more callbacks if you anglicized your name. Can you tell me a bit about this origin story? Sure, yeah, that's not the whole story. It's just a, okay. little, a little snippet of it. It's the snippet of it that I think brown folks love to understandably latch on to, right? Because it's yes. the one that we can most relate to. So yes. the point of the coming up with a screen name, the origin story of that starts in college. Okay. It was... Uh, probably my junior year, maybe sophomore or junior year at UCLA. It was one of those late nights, like two o'clock in the morning, hanging out with your friends. And none of my friends were theater or film majors like I was. They were all in more traditional majors. And we started talking about competitiveness in the arts and they just sort of thought, so that's insane. So you graduate and you don't know if you have a job? Like, no. And if you're an accounting major or a couple of the guys were pre-med, like, that's crazy. So you just, there's no stability. And I was like, no, did my parents call you to talk about that? <laughs> and so then they started creatively saying, well, what are some things that you can do to give yourself a competitive advantage? And we were talking about headshots and demo reels and things that actors do to prepare. Sure. And then one of them said, what about a screen name? And I said, what about a screen name? Well, you know, Whoopi Goldberg isn't really Whoopi Goldberg. Her name is Karen Johnson. I was like, Whoopi Goldberg's name wasn't Whoopi Goldberg? I didn't like, know that no. until the second. <laughs> right, okay. And so, and so then my buddies were like, could you imagine if she went by Karen Johnson? Like, it's just not as memorable as Whoopi Goldberg. And I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And then someone else pointed out that Chevy Chase's real first name is Cornelius. So they're like, thank God he didn't go by Cornelius Chase. <laughs> so we were trying to come up with fun screen names. And Gulpin, my first name, was often shortened to Cal by brown folks and non-brown folks alike. Yeah. Same way that Joseph becomes Joe or, you know, any of that. Yep. 
so they're like, oh, well, what if you split your first name in half? And we sort of jokingly were like, the extra N is for not going to play a stereotypical cab driver. <laughs> so around the same time I was getting new headshots, which is what every actor needs as sort of your calling card that goes out with your resume, just to see what would happen. I changed the name on the headshot from Kalpen Modi to Kalpen. And nothing happened for a while, but shortly thereafter, there was one agent who finally called and said, hey, would love for you to audition for me, potentially for representation. And so I did, and then I ended up booking a job or two through her. And so once you have a job attached to a specific name, you sort of keep that name. So in fairness, I'll never know whether it was a more palatable sounding name, whether it was a new headshot that I got, whether it was a combination of factors, but that's the story about coming up with that name. Wow. And so I want to back up because you caught this initial acting bug in middle school after a school play, I believe. Can you talk to me about those early years hustling to break into the industry even before college? So I went to a performing arts high school in New Jersey, publicly funded. Wow. Yeah, one of the few publicly funded <laughs> arts high schools that are still left. So obviously I didn't, didn't have anybody in the family or anything who was into a professional commercial arts career that way. So then it was time to apply to college. I Applied to like 15 schools. Half of them were for theater, film, and television. The other half were just sort of general ed. And then I was surprised that I got into some of the top theater and film schools in the country. And I think that was a big eye-opener. I'm like, wait, can I do this as a career? Is that possible? Yeah. And so I moved to California. I did my undergrad at UCLA and immediately sort of started trying to get my foot in the door, work as many odd jobs as I could to pay for money to save up to get a car which you need in California to get to job interviews or auditions and, and kind of work a career up from there. Wow. And I'm curious, how did your parents react to you wanting to pursue this path? Yeah, great question. So I think a lot of, a lot of parents, period, but especially South Asian immigrant parents of a particular generation, the arts aren't encouraged. I think that's still probably the case. The arts aren't necessarily encouraged in our community. And so in the book and the audiobook that I wrote, I recount these stories about being... 16 years old and aunties and uncles come over and all the kids are talking about what you want and to do after high school. pin drop silence. When, when I you... say film school, yeah, there's pin drop silence. And everyone's like, okay, why would you want to be an actor? Why would you want to be a filmmaker? I get it now from the perspective of our parents because you sacrifice everything to come to the United States. You're, at least in the my parents' generation, post-1965, early 70s, the only reason that Asian Americans were allowed to come to the U.S. is to fill a labor shortage in things like yep. engineering and medicine. It's something we often forget. And so if the thing that allowed you to come to America was your specific degree in a specific field, of course, you're going to want to encourage your kid Absolutely. to go into that field. And I, I'm using encourage very liberally. You're, pressure, you're going to pressure your kid <laughs> to do something like that. I think for me, the stranger part was actually not the parents or the uncle and auntie generation, it was my peers. So when I was at UCLA, I experienced sort of the same thing from younger brown kids who were like, oh, what wow. are you, you're such a sellout. How come you're majoring in theater and film instead of in the sciences? I was like, what is this? Why are you connecting being brown with what you're majoring in? That's wild. So thankfully, things have changed a lot. In yeah. some ways they have, obviously, some ways they haven't. But yeah, the early days were a funny, interesting time in that regard. Wow. Super interesting. So something I found fascinating in just reading about your career is your feature film debut comes in, I believe, 1998 with Express Out of Glory and then your breakthrough role in Van Wilder. And then these bigger hits like The Namesake, Harold and Kumar and House Followed. But oftentimes early on, you were typecast or made to play these roles that captured 
the racism of the era, aka terrorists or the geek yeah. with the Indian accent. On one hand, you're this person of color trying to break into this industry with a super non-traditional background, mm-hmm. but you're also trying to hold your ground as a serious multidimensional actor. How did you grapple with the brown catch-22? And can you speak to certain instances in which you struggled with that? Yeah, sure. I call it the brown catch-22 in the book. And what I mean by that is, let me just start by saying it's hard for any actor to get a job, right? It's just a super competitive industry. And so anytime you're starting out, no matter what you look like, casting directors are going to try to hire you for jobs that reflect what they think you should play. So until you've built up a resume, you know, if you're like 6'3 with blonde hair and you're from Iowa, you're probably going to get a lot of football player auditions early on. The challenge with that is there weren't a whole lot of jobs for people who looked like me, right? You're neither black nor white. They're not specifically writing parts for South Asian actors at that time. I'm talking about the late 90s, early 2000s. And so the only time you can audition for anything is when something is written specifically ethnic or specifically Indian. And that tended to be also very stereotypical. So it would be just one or two lines or a couple of lines that were a function of the main characters who tended to be white. I love that this is a South Asian podcast because you'll understand without me having to explain a whole lot. But oftentimes I think we look at a stereotype and the first reaction people have is, oh man, he had to do an accent or oh, he had to play a cab driver. And that's always been weird to me because it's almost as if having an accent or being a cab driver are somehow not good things. Like you're a hardworking cab driver, like do your thing, man. Like those guys work so hard. Plenty of people have accents and accent alone does not make a stereotype which is why when I said added the extra N for not playing a stereotypical cab driver, that word <laughs> stereotypical is means a lot, right? So generally and historically, an accent is used to mask bad writing or subpar writing. Or a profession is the focus of what a character is as opposed to who he is and what advances the plot of a piece. So if you think about it, a lot of the more stereotypical representations happen to come from this reductionism that exists in those depictions. So it was frustrating at first because on the one hand, sure, it might be contributing to a stereotype, but you might also need to take a particular job to get a credit on your resume. And so it was always a calculation of, do I need the money to pay my rent? Will I even get this job if I audition for it? And will it yield something bigger? Will it lead to another job? There are plenty of actors, to be clear, even from that era, who rejected this calculus and said, no, no matter what, I'm not going to play these kinds of parts, even if it yields credits on my resume. And I obviously completely respect that path as well. In my case, I decided to not go 100% in. It's, it's funny, you're, like, it's tough now, especially when some of those roles like Van Wilder with Ryan Reynolds, it's about to have its 20th anniversary, or I don't know, this episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, like that's a show everybody yeah. remembers. So if those are the things you can obviously point to and go, wasn't that a stereotype? And it's like, yes, it was. And I'm happy to share the story about how those projects came about. But of course, you'll never know the like the other ones that I and other brown actors were just like, no, nah, I'm good. I don't want to audition for that thing. Or no, yeah. you go ahead, give it to you know, give it to somebody else who needs a credit. So to me, the frustrating part about those early days, aside from the career navigation, was that you become an artist, or in my case, you become a performing artist because I, I love storytelling. You don't go to med school to say, I'm going to be the best Indian doctor I can be. You go to med school because presumably you have a passion for medicine. So in my case, I was like, I have a passion for storytelling in the arts. I'm not going to like Indian drama school. I'm just going to drama school. I just want to play the dude. I don't want to have to worry about navigating things like representation, race, or ethnicity. You just, you so badly want to have the luxury of what other 
performers have, which is I got to play a part, right? Yeah. But we don't live in a vacuum. So I was certainly mindful of the fact that I didn't see a whole lot of characters who looked like me on screen growing up. Long-winded way of answering your question, but a lot of those early years were navigating those kinds of conversations. No, I appreciate you framing it that way because in a sense, it is a privilege and a luxury to turn those roles down in some instance, or it's not in that you're potentially hurting your career by not getting those credits. So I think that's an added dimension that we don't always think about, especially in the current era of woke culture and cancel culture, where it's like, why did you make that decision maybe without the additional context around it? Yeah, I think context is always important. I'll share the story about Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I love this story. I was going to ask you too. (laughs) It was a very eye-opening experience, frankly. And for people watching and listening who don't remember, Sabrina the Teenage Witch was a like a kid's sitcom that went from the 90s into the 2000s with Melissa Joan Hart, like a very fun, likable cast. And I think they had a talking cat. And to be honest, it was not very funny. It was just one of those like late 90s kids shows. I loved it. So (laughs) So that's the thing. Everybody loved it, right? It was phenomenally popular. And my the one agent who I managed to get a couple of years after into looking for an agent, the one who I mentioned who responded to the headshot, she called me one day and she said, hey, there's an audition for you. It's for Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I prepared for it. It was only like three lines, but I prepared this whole backstory. So this goes into like, as an actor, you just want to play the part. So generally, if you have like a three or four line part, you don't do enormous amounts of preparation, but auditions were so few and far between that I was excited to develop a backstory for the character. You know, he was a kid (laughs) in Sabrina's college study group. He was this guy who just had three lines. And I said, okay, in the backstory in my head, he's from Seattle. He likes small batch organic coffee and micro brews. He wears flannel shirts and loves cold weather. And like he goes hiking. There was this whole thing that I had developed in my head. I went to the audition and I did the three lines and it seemed like they liked it. And on my way back to my car, the casting director was running after me and he goes, Hey, the producers actually would love for you to do it again. Can you come back? And that's always a good sign, right? If they want to see more, that means you're definitely one of the front runners. Absolutely. So I walked back in and right before I walked back in the room, he goes, this time they want you to do it with an accent. I was like, Oh, the bait and switch. (laughs) So I walked in and they said, Hey, you were wonderful. We'd like you to do it again this time with an accent. And I said what I always used to say at the time, which was, Sounds great. What kind of accent would you like? I can do New York, Scottish, Irish, Portuguese. Like I just, and they weren't particularly amused with that. And the one guy just goes, why don't we just stick to Indian? I was like, okay. And I remember thinking at the time, A, you know, do I want to do this or do I not want to do this? Choice is mine. Nobody's forcing me to do anything, right? I can turn around and leave and just very respectfully say, sorry, this isn't what I'm looking to do. Or I can do what they want me to do. Or I can blow it all up and get mad at them and, you know, sort of storm out. And I thought, well, this job pays 750 bucks and my rent is 550 bucks. So after taxes and everything, it'll basically pay my rent for a month if I get this job. So, and I need a credit on my resume. I know that. So I guess I'll at least do this accent and see what happens. So I did the scene again with an Indian accent didn't feel great about myself because they were laughing harder than they should have laughed at a show about a talking cat. You know, like the words hadn't changed, right? This is what I mean when I say that a lot of times, especially old school white producers will use accents to cover up bad writing. So nothing had changed except that there was an accent and they were suddenly laughing. So I'm like, all right, I know what this is about. So I left the audition, wasn't feeling particularly great. I went back to my apartment and my agent called and she said, congratulations, you got this job. And I remember not being happy about it. And so going back to what we were talking about in terms of, I almost felt cheated out of what 
most actors got to experience, which was you book a job, you're so happy. You go out and get drinks with your friends. You're there for each other. You celebrate everybody's success together when you're coming up. And here I was having booked a job that was going to be a credit on my resume and pay me a month's rent. And I wasn't happy about it. Mm. So I said to her, hey, they asked me to do an accent at the callback. Could you call them and see if I can do this job without a stereotypical accent? And she goes, well, why don't you do this? My suggestion would be, since you know you need the money and you know you need the credit on your resume, go in a little early and pull the director aside and ask him if you can do it without an accent. It's like, oh, okay, cool. I didn't know that was a thing that I could do. Sure. So I went in early the day of the shoot. I found the director. I pulled him aside and I said, hey, man, thank you so much for having me. You know, your, the script is so funny. I'm so blessed to be part of your show. I was hoping maybe I could play the part the way that I auditioned the first time, which was without an accent. I created a whole backstory for the character, and he just interrupted me. He goes, no, 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 we hired you to do the accent, so that's what you're going to do. And so I was like, ah, all right, well, I never grew up seeing characters that didn't have accents, and I know I can find the humor without doing it. And he goes, no, 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 you're doing the accent. It's funny. So then I thought to myself, well, you know, they say that racism comes from ignorance, right? So maybe this dude is just ignorant and doesn't even realize that he's being racist. So I was like, let me just double down and explain, right? <laughs> so I said, well, look, I'm just going to push back on you just for a minute because I came up with this really fun backstory for the character. That's why I auditioned the first way. And also, you know, I have little cousins who love your show. I thought it would be so cool if they got to see a character who looked like them that wasn't a stereotype because I never got to see that when I was growing up. And this dude looks at me and he says, oh, yeah? And I said, yeah. He goes, cool. Well, um, your little cousins should feel lucky that you're allowed to be on TV to begin with, and so should you. And he walks off. And I was like, sweet. So this misnomer that racism comes from ignorance doesn't seem to be true. It seems, yeah. seems that he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows where the power lies. He knows the depiction that he wants to tell, and it's done purposely. And I did it. Again, same thing, by the way. I could have left. I could have cited some sort of disagreement. I didn't do that. I decided to do what they wanted and then get the credit on my resume. But this is definitely not a situation where I'm like lamenting a story that I was an active participant in. I just think these stories are relevant because I'm so happy with how the entertainment industry has progressed so much in the last 15 or 20 years, especially the last 10 years, yeah. that I wrote about some of these early stories in the book because I feel like that context is important for all of us to celebrate the progress and kind of take stock of how much more work still needs to be done. Absolutely, yeah. And you touched exactly on what I wanted to ask you about next. You've had such a robust career over two decades now, more than that. How have you seen the industry change? I mean, today, you know, we're obviously seeing shows like Never Have I Ever. You know, you were in Hot Mess Holiday. The namesake was a place where you started your career with Mira Nair, written by Jumba Lahiri. I'm just curious yeah. what your perspective is on the evolution. The evolution to me is super exciting, right? In talking about the evolution, I also have to acknowledge, if I can borrow at this point, what's thankfully an overused phrase, is the people whose shoulders I stand on, it's not just like one person. It goes four or five tears deep. And these are other South Asian artists whose names we'll never know because there just weren't opportunities for them. And many of them are still working. You know, and they run theater companies and they work regularly, but they're of an older generation where there wasn't that opportunity in commercially viable projects that exist now, because a lot of that happens when you're younger. Yeah. So I certainly don't think I could have done the things that I had the chance to do were it not for those folks. And I'm, I have a lot of gratitude towards them. In the last 10 or 15 years, what's also really exciting is there's this newer generation of 
creatives, writers, producers, directors who happen to be South Asian. And that's driving a lot of this. And then also streaming platforms are a place where because they're not as advertiser driven as traditional networks, they can take what's a perceived business risk with diversity, right? If you're an NBC or an ABC, full disclosure, I've obviously worked with all those networks and I hope to continue to work with them, but their business model is such that it makes sense to look backwards because you're advertiser driven. You have to sell commercials in order to put a show on the air. And so you look back and say, what's a show that did well? This show did well. Let's do a show that's like this so that advertisers are happy, right? Mm -hmm. It just means it's tougher to change and things take a lot longer as opposed to a streaming platform where it's subscription driven. You could just be like, this script is great. Let's do it. And audiences really do want to see characters they haven't seen before enter worlds they haven't entered before. And so in my perspective, it's a wonderful combination of the community coming of age and and having a lot of folks who are artists and writers and content creators at a time where there's a platform to sell these kinds of stories and shows. Absolutely. What do you think we still have to work on or the industry still has to work on? What I love about this question is, and thank you for asking it in this way, I think too often we look at one project that excites us and do this thing where it's like, we've arrived. Here it is. <laughs> Everything's fine now. It's like, come on, what, what are you doing? A parody is an ongoing thing. You can't just point to one thing and say, this happened. Of course it happened. That's great. But we need more people to create more content, to continue to sell exciting stories, to connect audiences and bring them into worlds. And it's especially exciting when you see folks like Lily saying. Aziz, Mindy, Sujata Day, like a lot of people who are really creating that kind of content and putting it out there. We just need to keep doing it. Yeah. I'm curious. I want to talk a bit about Harold and Kumar because I feel like it's the franchise that really catapulted you and seems to mean a lot to you. Can you speak a little bit about that experience, getting the first script and then participating in the series? Yeah. All right. So the story with Harold and Kumar is I was doing this quite stereotypical movie called Malibu's Most Wanted. If you've never heard of it, you don't have to look it up. But I had a small part in this movie, and it was like the producer's birthday or something. And so I went with a bunch of the cast, and there was it was like a friend of a friend, basically, was John Hurwitz, who's one of the creators of Harold and Kumar, and his writing partner, Hayden Schlossberg. So John and Hayden were at this party, and we're introduced, and John Hurwitz says to me something like, oh shit, you don't have an Indian accent. And I was so off put by this. I was like, who is this idiot? <laughs> who's like greeting me with, wow, you don't have an Indian accent. And then he quickly clarified. He's like, no, 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 no. I saw you in that movie, Van Wilder. You were very funny. I assumed that accent was real because it was believable to me. I was like, ah, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> and then he and Hayden told me about this script they wrote called Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. And they said, we'd love for you to read it and get any thoughts that you have. They sent it to me that Monday. I read it quickly. It was the funniest script I'd ever read. I was laughing out loud and I called Hurwitz and I said, Hey man, this is the funniest shit I've ever read. You're never going to sell it in Hollywood. So I would love to help find venture capital or, you know, some like rich cardiologist uncle who could (laughs) donate some money to get the movie made. And Herwitz was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. We're selling this script. I was like, there's no reality in which anybody in Hollywood is going to greenlight a script starring a Korean-American guy and an Indian-American guy. It's just not going to happen. And he goes, well, you seem super jaded, but the script goes out to market next week, and we're going to sell it to a studio. I said, all right, but they're going to ask you to change the ethnicity of the characters because this has happened to people I know. You know, They write a script with any characters of color, and it immediately has to get changed to white folks. 
And Hurwitz said something like, okay, I mean, they can ask us to do that, but we're making Harold and Kamara go to White Castle. We're not making David and Jason go to McDonald's. I was like, (laughs) whoa, okay, all right. You're funny in real life. I like this. And sure enough, the script went out to market the following week. A company called Senator International bought it with New Line Cinema distributing it and then began this very long process of casting. So there's never a shortage of talented performers to fill certain roles. It's always a question of lack of opportunity, right? So they were auditioning actors to play Harold and Kumar in L.A., San Francisco, New York, London, Sydney, Toronto, just all over the place. And with each passing round of auditions, it got to a smaller and smaller group until finally I think there were three or four choices for Harold's and three or four choices for Kumar's and they did a mix and match session. And then John and I ultimately got cast in those parts. And one of the first conversations that John Cho and I had during the rehearsal process, we shot the film in Toronto in Canada and we were staying in the same apartment complex and John knocked on my apartment door and he goes, Hey man, we're supposed to play best friends. Let's grab a drink. And so we went to grab a beer. And one of the first things he said to me was, can you believe that a movie like this is being made? You know, the, 12-year-old me would be so happy about that. And I had a similar phrase for the 12-year-old me, which was like the middle school me. And so the fact that we both had that shared experience, and both of us had very different paths to getting that movie, but it was reassuring that I was like, oh, this dude gets it. Like, this is awesome to have the chance to do this project together. And we've been friends ever since. Wow. Well, that's beautiful. And I remember growing up with it and yeah, it's just amazing to see, to your point, even like the evolution of how far we've come. Because even people yeah. my age feel that way. I'm about to turn 25 and I'm like, wow, people like me on screen yeah. having these stories that I never saw growing up. Totally, yeah. Very, very powerful. I want to talk about part of why you wrote your recent memoir, You Can't Be Serious. And it was partially because you wanted to show people that you can have multiple passions in a world that right. often makes us feel like you can only have one. Yeah. And that sentiment for me certainly struck a chord because that encapsulates a lot of me and my career path and just general interest. So I want to spend time on your second passion, which is civic engagement and politics. Sure. In 2009, you left your role as a series regular on House to join the Obama White House Can you talk to me about this decision and the role you took on? Yeah, sure. The full long version of this is obviously, like you said, in the book and audio book. But the truncated version was I was working on the TV show House at the time, and it was the first regular acting job I had, right? So actors work for a couple of weeks or a couple of months here or there, unless you're on a series. And that was the series, which meant every single day I got to go to work. And wasn't expecting to leave that show for any reason. I had always had an interest in public service, but not politics. And Olivia Wilde, who was on the show with me, had a plus one to a Barack Obama campaign event. And just for context, this was in October of 2007. And Obama was down 30 points in the primary polls against Hillary Clinton and John Edwards. Nobody thought he was going to win the Democratic nomination, not to mention become the president-elect. And Olivia invited me to this event. I decided to go with her, mostly because there was a free open bar. And (laughs) I was motivated to volunteer for the campaign. So Olivia, myself, an actor named Megalyn Ichikanwake, and Tatiana Ali, the four of us, I think, were the first artists to go and help the Obama campaign. And I kind of got hooked. I loved the people that I met on the campaign. And fast forward about a year, year and a half, I had gone to 26 different states as a campaign volunteer and working on the arts policy committee for the Obama campaign. And then the guy becomes the president elect 
and there was an opportunity to serve at the White House. The story is a lot more juicy than that involving Michelle Obama hazing the shit out of me at <laughs> an inauguration concert backstage with my parents. That's the real reason that I got the job to begin with, that all those juicy details are in the thing. But the reason I'm telling you that is it's this, it's a bunch of steps that led to having a chance to serve our country at the White House. And many of them were missteps on my part that are no different than a lot of other industries and a lot of other jobs. And then the thing about public service that really stuck with me was I got a lot of attention because I was on a TV show. I was already yeah. in the public eye, so to speak. But there are thousands and thousands of people who take leaves of absence from their private sector jobs to work in public service and in government. They do that all the time, regardless of their political affiliation or which administration is serving. It's not even just at the federal level. They do it at school boards and city councils and local PTAs and things like that. And that was really very inspiring to see. So that's the abridged version of how I ended up getting that job. Wow. And I think that point is interesting because you talk about how you initially thought you were being hired for the role because of your fame. And then your boss assured you that you were actually being hired in spite of it. Well, so I was hoping that my acting background wasn't the reason. I didn't think it was, but I wanted to be sure. So I was applying basically for a job in the outreach office, the public engagement office. And on the campaign, I had worked on arts policy, which means arts education, cultural diplomacy, things like that. I'd also worked on Asian American and Pacific Islander outreach. And I'd finished teaching a class at the University of Pennsylvania that year in Asian American studies. And then I was also working on youth outreach for the campaign. It just so happened they were looking for one staffer to fill those three exact jobs in the incoming administration. And so I was very excited. And I I sort of thought, this is great. I'm qualified for these three positions. But then this little thing in my head was like, just make sure that it's not because you're an actor that they're hiring you. It's the outreach office. It's the public engagement office. And I got immediately insecure about it. Mm. And it was this weird version of imposter syndrome. So in my last interview, I asked Valerie Jarrett, one of Obama's senior advisors and now a dear friend, I said, hey, Valerie, I just want to make sure that I'm not being hired here because I'm an actor, right? And she looks at me and goes, I can assure you you're being hired in spite of it. And I was like, all right. <laughs> also a testament of all the people who worked in that administration. I was I was one of many who came from a separate private sector career and yeah. our outside expertise was valued, but any of the nonsense that came along with that was not part of our job day to day, which was very, very reassuring. Wow. So you work as the associate director in the White House Office of Public Engagement. You go back, you work on How I Met Your Mother, the third installment of Harold and Kumar. There's a bit of back and forth. And then you eventually return to co-chair President Obama's re-election campaign in 2012. Can you share any of your favorite anecdotes from the campaign trail or while you were working directly with him in his office? Yeah, sure. The back and forth was always planned. Thank you for bringing that up. That's another thing folks usually have a question on, which is, hey, you gave up acting and then you gave up politics. I'm like, no, no, no. Here's how it works when you have the chance to be a political appointee. Some people serve for six months. Other people serve for the full four or eight years. My plan was to serve in government for a year. And I extended to two years because we realized very early on, oh yeah, government operates very, very slowly. The things that I was working on, the legislative parts of the things I was working on, weren't going to get done until the second year that I was there. So I extended But the plan was always to serve for a finite amount of time and then come back to my first love, which is acting. The nice thing about a re-election campaign and something like boards and commissions are that you can do those while you work in your private sector job. So after the two years in the administration, I co-chaired the president's re-election campaign 
and then served on the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities, both things that I could do while I was acting. So Mm -hmm. that was awesome. I think the couple of things that were big takeaways, and this is now two presidencies ago, so the context is super interesting to me, is young voters, who's most of who I dealt with, or Asian American Pacific Islander voters, they tend to agree with each other more than you think of when you open Twitter or turn on the news. And so there were things like the DREAM Act, which unfortunately failed by five Democratic votes, actually, or the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or doubling the Pell Grants for college, student loans, things like that, the Affordable Care Act. Those were things that most people agreed on. And even things that people disagreed on, we would really strive to bring people who disagreed to the table to have conversations instead of just the like yelling and screaming on Twitter, which by the way, feels great to like send a nasty tweet to somebody, but it doesn't actually accomplish anything, right? It, it makes you get that rage out, but yep. it doesn't actually change anything. So it was having the patience and the calculus to figure out how do you rally folks when that's the right thing to do? And then how do you have respectful conversations and come to some sort of a consensus on the other side? I don't know if that makes sense, but it was, that's the no, one difference from just in the last eight years, the way our politics seem to be now. It was something that I value from my time there. Yeah. And in playing roles like the one you played in Designated Survivor, where you are a White House staffer and back and forth, like it seems that there was not necessarily overlap, but you know, you actually served as a consultant for the show, given your experience in politics. I'm curious what ways your skill set in one field has impacted your work as an actor and vice versa. I try to keep those as separate as possible. So what okay. I love about being an artist is different from what I enjoy about working in public service. So when I first got the script for Designated Survivor, I didn't even read it. I heard what it was about. I'm like, oh, it's a White House show. I don't really want to do something like that because won't the perspective be that I took this job because I worked at the White House or vice versa? And then I read the script and I was like, oh, this is so far-fetched. It's a conspiracy theory thriller with (laughs) Kiefer Sutherland as the president. I'm going to say yes to it. And the consulting piece was probably the only thing that I had that outside expertise on. So they were looking for, hey, just as a consultant, your job is not to tell them what to do. It's to tell them whether something would happen in reality. And so for most of that show, we'd get early scripts and I'd say, this wouldn't happen. This would happen. Here's how this would happen. And they would do the exact opposite because it's a TV show. So they would want to like, they would want to make it thrilling and titillating. And it's very different than what people think, which is, hey, so that happens in real life. You're a consultant. Like, actually... It does not happen in real life that way. Yeah. Interesting. So you're this actor who's played this wide swath of roles. And as you talk about some potentially cringeworthy to the immigrant parent, and you're also this person who's flown Air Force One with the country's first black president. What advice do you have for young aspirational South Asians who also have a multitude of passions considered unconventional? Yeah, I think you just have to pursue them if you want to pursue them. You know, this question comes up a lot when I lecture at colleges and universities. And here's the extreme version of that. So oftentimes there will be somebody who literally is like the 22-year-old version of me, raises their hand and says, you know, my parents don't love that my passion is dance or my passion is public service or my passion is the arts. And that's really what I want to do with my life. Do you have any advice on how to convince them to let me do it. And I'll usually say, well, what are you majoring in? And oftentimes they'll say, oh, I'm an econ major. I'm a bio major. So I'll say, okay, from your major, it sounds like you don't have that passion at a certain level, which is fine. Oftentimes I think we think we like the idea of something, but we don't like the execution of it. And here's what I mean by that. The conversation with 
the parents, with the South Asian community, no matter how conservative they are, no matter what you have to go up against, that's way easier than having to deal with a casting director or a producer or somebody who truly is going to try to shut you out because of what we look like or how high the glass ceiling is, mm. the barrier to entry, all of that. So if you're not prepared to have that conversation with the parents, with the community, that's okay. It might mean that you like the idea of something, but not the execution yeah. of it. So there are a couple of choices, right? Either plan the execution of it and plan how you're going to do the thing that you want to do or figure out if you don't actually want to do it, but you like the idea of it, then you do it with something else. So if you're going to med school, there's probably a reason for that. It's not just parental pressure. You probably like some aspect of it. And so then maybe you're able to do an arts thing, you know, on your off semester or on the side, or you write every Sunday when you're not studying. So it's, it's sort of a decision point that only an individual can resolve for themselves, yeah. right? Absolutely. I actually feel that on a very personal level, when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a journalist because I also love storytelling. Yeah. And then, you know, I went to college and got involved with some of the school papers and I was like, this is not for me. Yeah, I love doing this exactly. in a casual sense. Here. I love doing this podcast, but do I want to be on yeah. the ground? Or, like, that's not who I am. And so I think it's also understanding totally. which mode you want to be in with a certain passion that's of yours. Right. That's right. I'm glad you put it that way because that's 100% true that with the acting conversation, a lot of times, the next step of that, by the way, is if the kid's like, no, no, I'm trying to change my major and I'm trying to have the conversation with the parents. I'm like, great. Then just also know, like, are you prepared for the eight years of eating beans out of a can and going on auditions and working odd jobs? And a lot of people like myself are like, hell yeah, I'll do whatever it takes because this is my passion. For a lot of people, they're like, oh, there's no guarantee of a job in that industry. I'm like, no. I could probably do it for like six months, but then I'm out. I would go back to school. I'm like, great. So do it for six months, right? Like move to LA or New York. If you can do it from wherever you are, try it out for six months. See if you like it. If after six months you're like, oh yeah, this is a thing I could do because I love it enough. Then you got your answer right there. But if not, then you have something else too. I love that. I love that. <laughs> super, super interesting. I want to spend a second on a more personal note. You can't be serious. It's so phenomenal. And I'm so glad that you ended up deciding to write it despite your early Thank inclinations. You. But it's also where you first revealed that you're gay and you're engaged to be married to your partner of 11 years. And I know, like I said, you didn't always intend to write this book, but why this avenue? And what was that experience like sharing this? Thank you, by the way. Uh, and there's no wedding date yet, if for any of the aunties and uncles <laughs> listening who will always ask that question. So the reason, as you mentioned before, that I wrote the book was I wanted to write it for two sets of people. One was like the 25-year-old version of me who was trying to navigate an industry that I didn't know anybody in. And then the second set of people was like the person who doesn't think that the world is made up of mutually exclusive choices, which happen to be most of us yeah. now, right? It's like you have multiple passions or interests. And as I was putting the book together, so all of the chapters are pretty well researched because they either deal with the entertainment industry and there was three years of research and citations that went into it. Same thing with the government stuff. And as I was putting the book together, I was like, oh, this needs a lighter narrative. Like I need to include more about growing up and more about just living life now. And both of those things, like on the one hand, one was about meeting my partner, Josh. The other one was my parents. Both sets of humans who are like very averse to being yeah. in the public eye. So like my parents have, same with my brother too, actually. They, they've usually come to various premieres and work events and openings and things like that. And they'll always go through the yeah. side door. Like, go ahead. I know you have to do interviews. You have to go and do all that. We're just going to go through the side door and we'll see you at the seats. Same thing with Josh. We've been together 11 years. It's like, he'll go in with my parents and my brother <laughs> through the side door. 
I don't want to deal with all this. I don't like being on camera. I'll just see you inside. So when I was putting the book together, I perhaps naively was like, I went to my parents and I went to Josh. I'm like, here are some stories that I think are really fun that mean a lot to me that I'd like to share. In the case of Josh, it was how we met in this bizarre first date over NASCAR and really bad beer. And with my parents, it was a lot of like the auntie and uncle stories, the rejection in high school of what I wanted to do for a living. And so those were the only chapters in the book that had no merit to them, right? Because they're all just like fun personal stories. So I very naively didn't realize when the book came out that those would be the chapters that the press gravitates towards. Because I just sort of thought they were fun, engaging stories that I was really excited to share in the context of all the other stories. And then the next thing you know, it, that's the only that thing people are focused on. That, well, that journalists are talking about. Readers obviously want to read the full breadth of like the fun and funny stories. So I think I was a little naive in my approach because I just didn't think that any of those stories were as noteworthy as the like the Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the like working for the country's first black president. But you know, I, I'm also notoriously bad at knowing how people view me. <laughs> And so that's an example of like, I'm so glad people resonated with those stories because obviously they mean a lot to me. I probably just would have maybe led with that if I knew they were of such interest. Yeah, super, super interesting. Well, I thought it was extremely powerful. And to my point, I'm very glad you decided to write this memoir. Thank you so much. Now, I want to talk about what's next for you. I mean, in October, your show Getting Warmer with Cal Penn about climate change will debut. You also have a host of other projects in the works, including the biopic about superfan Nav Bhatia, which is an instance in which we're centering South Asian stories. Can you speak to these projects and what's on the horizon for you longer term? Yeah, sure. The Nav story is something I'm really looking forward to. We, we're we still looking for a writer to develop the story. So a lot of people think, oh, you're shooting it right now or it's coming out soon in the next couple of years. So that's a real labor of love that we're working with him. Obviously, want to get his story and his perspective right. And then I'm doing a six-episode limited series for Disney Plus called uh, The Clauses. Yes. It's a Christmas show that comes out this winter. Very excited about that. And then you mentioned the climate change docuseries for Bloomberg, which is more about climate solutions than anything else. And what do you see for yourself longer term in this industry? Do you see yourself producing more, writing more, continuing to act? I'd love to be able to do as much as possible. I love all aspects of storytelling. It's why I like the docuseries thing. And I think my baby will always be dumb comedies. (laughs) So would love to continue to do all of that. Will we get another book? I hope so. Yeah. So I'll do the shameless plug. The paperback's coming out in a couple of weeks. It's less heavy than the uh, hardcover. So if it does well, yeah, I'd love to continue writing. I mean, the nature of the book, I'm glad the paperback's coming out in the summer. I wanted it to be something that you can read on vacation. You can read at the pool. You're a little hungover. Maybe you're listening to the audio book on a Sunday or on your drive to work. Like It should be fun and engaging despite some of the heavier stories that are in there. So yeah, I would love to write a little more. Yeah. And I will say, I love the Easter eggs that are sort of in there throughout and little bits and pieces. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. (laughs) The last thing I want to ask is you've had this impressive repertoire of filmography. You've had this career in politics. You've been a lecturer. I mean, you've done such a range of amazing things. Through all of this, what's given you the conviction to continue believing in yourself? Oh, what a nice question. I guess I should first acknowledge you don't always, right? There are so many times where, at least in my experience, and this is the experience of most of my friends, you question a lot of stuff, and that's really good to do, is you question whether you want to keep going in a particular avenue of your life or if you want to change something. And, And then there's a certain amount of that that's also 
phenomenally selfish, right? I just love writing and producing things and working in this particular career. And so that's what I want to do. And if somebody's telling me that I can't do it or that there's a particular door that they're closing, yeah, part of me wants to figure out how to open it. But the other part of me is just like, okay, how do I build my own house and do it my own way with my own door that I can leave open for other people like me? So it just sort of depends on how you structure that in your head. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your yeah, story. You. I will say whether it was as Kumar or as Kuttner, I mean, I have followed your career for a very long time. And for me, you were one of those first emblems of representation. So it's amazing to continue seeing the work that you're doing and how outspoken you are about identity and representation. So thanks so much for taking the time for joining me on Trailblazers today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.